morning. I'm Terry Woods, and this is Texas Storytellers. With me today is Dixie Cooper. And we're brought to you by Woodlands Online and their Roku station at KVQT21, iHeartRadio if you prefer a podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or anywhere else you can find a podcast, you can find Texas Storytellers. You know, after the show today, if you decide, hey, I have a story to tell, please write to us. You can, you can do that by uh, commenting on Woodlands Online. So today, kind of piggybacking off of our last episode, we're going to continue to talk about families. We used a book called Good Families Don't Just Happen. And um, uh, the author of that book and her husband brought up 10 sons. She herself came from a proud family. And you know what? I found out that Dixie and I came from proud families too. Our dads both served in World War II. My dad served in the army along with his two brothers. He also had a sister. Her name was Benita. And they uh, did everything that they could do to uh, serve our country in World War II, even Benita. She was an interpreter, ended up moving to Washington DC where she lived out her life with her family. My father um, was in a couple of different parts uh, during World War II. And at one point he found himself in Italy. He was a gunner and uh, he worked really, really hard. He, they uh, tried to um, draft him and his two brothers and um, he didn't qualify for the draft for a couple of reasons. One, the only one that I remember is that I think he was flat-footed. So later on, he joined himself. Now, at that time, which was a long time ago, uh, Time Magazine and other magazines and newsreels and so forth would uh, put out stories of human interest about the soldiers and what they did and so forth. One of those magazines was Time Magazine. Some years ago, I was able to get a copy of this particular uh, month. Um, it was um, 1943, September 27th. And at that time, which has nothing to do with anything, Time Magazine cost 15 cents. I bet that was too expensive for some people. Um, oh, I'll tell you, if I show you the picture, you can kind of see behind it. There were some problems in the House and the Senate between the Speaker and some of the senators in the Senate. Imagine that in 1943. <laughs> Imagine that could happen. <laughs> Anyway, they have a, a section in the Time Magazine at that time, and, and it's in a, a couple of different 
I guess I guess it went on for as long as the war did. I'm not real positive about that. But they have a section called World Battlefronts. Um, at one time, one of my sisters uh, had taken a picture of my dad in uniform and this article and put it in a great big frame, sent it to all of us for Christmas one year. And so I had to find the original article in, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago, I came across this through um, eBay and was able to find it. So I'm going to look through my magazine for a second. I might show you a couple of pictures. Like the commercial the advertisements, Dr. West's toothbrush, <laughs> floor shine shoes. Okay, so that's important to me because I told you there were three brothers that uh, went into the service. Well, my father's older brother, uh, Chester, Uncle Chet spent his life when he got home from the war, he married a, a nurse, a Navy nurse, and uh, he sold Florsheim shoes out of the back of a van or truck forever. So he was a door-to-door -door salesman, if you will. And I am frantically trying to find page 26. World Battlefronts. This issue talks about the Battle of Italy. So I'm going to read the first parts of it so you can get a flavor of, of what the comments my dad made are all about. Uh, in this article, my dad did not write anything in the article, but he did make a comment, and I thought it was noteworthy at the, for the time. The battle, it says, out of the darkness. The battle waged by German and allied soldiers on an invaded mainland of Italy. It was only one part of a developing campaign for Southern Europe. For the Germans, that campaign was already a nightmare of uncertainties, hidden threats, blows in the dark. Italians won Sardinia for the allies. Authorized accounts uh, revealed that Marshal Bagdalonio was working with the Allies behind the lines in, in Italy. Said that on, the, on his orders, two Italian divisions had pushed the Germans out of Sardinia. An Algiers communique called the German departure an evacuation. The Nazis had given up a, an island naval and air base from which torpedo boats and bombers could hinder allied shipping. A base which in allied hands will bring German positions in Southern France and Northern Italy with, within easier bombing range. French commandos, Corsicans, Italians, Germans in Corsica were allied fighters. They were also there. Of Italian activities and, and sympathies elsewhere, there was almost no authentic news. In the occupied South, the Italians generally were friendly. Swiss reports said 
that in the in the north where field marshal Erwin Rommel is preparing his defenses, Italian band seized a section of railway from the Germans, otherwise harried and fought them. A roundabout report from Cyprus. Um, Britain's island in the Eastern Mediterranean said that Italian refugees told of fighting in the islands between German and Italian soldiers. A German communique reported the seizure of Italian troop, troop, ship, troop ship, gave the impression that the Germans regarded the Italians as enemies. Now, for the men who fought there from our side, um, at some points, the Germans let the first forces come smoothly ashore and cluster on the white beaches. They blanketed them with artillery, firing from near hills. At others, naval landing craft bore the troops land, landward in the face of continuous fire. Everywhere, the men of the 5th Army had to establish themselves on the beaches, make their first moves, inland amid shells, bombs, and confusion and fear. 12 days after the landings, no connected first-hand account of all the battles in the British, US, and Canadian sectors um, had reached the US, like the, had reached the US. Like the soldiers, the frontline correspondents saw only the shapes of their particular hells. Of the accounts which did arrive, the clearest told of the crisis in an American sector near the juncture of, of Seal and Corelli, and I'm sure I'm not saying those right, where Field Marshal Albert Kissering's forces almost pushed to the sea. Time correspondent Will Lang was with the U.S. regiment in that sector. Many of its officers and men were Oklahomans. The regiment was one of several units ordered to march inland. And I'm going to move on just a little bit. The German thrust, which almost split the beachhead, was fierce, said the regiment's colonel, explaining the orders to the battalions. It's pretty far inland, and we don't know exactly what the enemies got, got in mind for that area but it must be urgent to get to the, to the high ground. And we wouldn't be sent off with so little information otherwise. The trick. At sundown, the regiment set off. As the soldiers trudged through the moonlit town, a civilian in a long coat gestured and jabbered something about Germans. The soldiers paid no attention. They just kept moving. In the early morning, a German plane bombed the regiment, dispersed for two hours, two hours sleep in the fields. Three wounded men were sent to the rear. The regiment marched on. By 6 a.m., Lieutenant Colonel Taylor, 3rd Battalion, was near the bridge on the river seal. A German machine gun chattered. These pages are quite old. Chattered Colonel Taylor, 
a company commander and artillery captain stood on the road, scanning the three screened way to the bridge. Now by this time, by this time, rifle and machine gun fire suddenly swept the road. The three officers dropped. The company commander was dead. The artillery captain wounded. Colonel Taylor was unhurt and he bawled, put some artillery on those bastards, let's get them. Private Louis Fidel looked out at his foxhole, saw men in khaki shorts, khaki shirts and pith helmets across the river. They looked like British soldiers. A faint voice called, don't fire on us, we're friends, we're friends. Fidel's sergeant ordered, ordered his men to hold their fire. A violent stream of artillery and machine gun fire tore the platoon positions. Said Private Fidel, we weren't fooled any longer. Our artillery started knocking the hell out of the houses across the river. And when men in pith helmets came rushing into the building, screaming for mercy, we opened up at them at everything we, with everything we had. We wouldn't let them go after that trick. And of course, Louis Fidel was my father. And we know what happened at the end of that war, thank goodness. Uh, and that was a harrowing part in Northern Italy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I've always been kind of uh, proud that that quote got in the Time magazine, but, but for an interesting reason, we knew nothing about my dad being part of a war or even a soldier, because the other thing at that time was people didn't talk about that very much. And he yeah. was very quiet about it. I know that when they talked about fear and the hell of it and so those kinds of things, I know he was bothered by those things for a long time, but that was never a discussion anywhere, especially at our dinner table. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That was one of the common threads. The World War II vets just never talked about it, but they they suffered with it just like any other soldier from any other war for sure. And it was sad that they didn't have any help with it as well. They just mm -hmm. really had to, I know my dad suffered from PTSD, but yet it wasn't diagnosed. Nobody knew what it was. It just wasn't discussed. He just mm -hmm. had to live with it. So that was an interesting story. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It, um... Oh, the other thing that brought up too, so as I said, he never talked about it, but he, and he also, he, he, had, he had a fine picture of himself in his uniform, as most soldiers do. Mm -hmm. We never found it. We never found it until after he passed. And that's when we found this article. And that's when we found that picture. You never saw it. Now that I did see. No, I, right. I saw the picture in the, the, the local newspaper had the picture of the three brothers, because I think that was a common thing to do. So we saw the picture of the three brothers and they talked about them. And then because his sister was an interpreter in Washington, she was mentioned. Um, but no, I never saw that. Wow. Wow. I know it just, 
the things we find out after they're gone and you wish, oh man, I wish I could have heard these things and heard these stories. And I wish I could have asked him mm -hmm, questions. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you have a story too, don't yes. you? Uh, yes. My dad did actually talk probably a lot more about it than yours. He was a Marine in the Pacific War. He, uh, he was in the Battle of Midway, which was the turning point of World War II, especially in the Pacific. He wrote this book, Midway Letters. This is a self-published book. It came about as he was, when he was, when my brother was about the age that my dad was during the war, he wrote letters to my brother about his war experiences. Um, and so that's why we have this, this book. And my brother then put it into a book form for us. And I've picked two passages to read today of the, through this book. Um, but I wanna give you just a little bit of background before I do so this will all make sense. But, but just one thing, I just wanna say that that makes your daddy a Texas author. It certainly does. He was a Texas author for sure, definitely a Texan. And, and this makes him a Texan author. Um, he, uh, but anyways, I mentioned he was on Midway. Now Midway has two islands on it. It's made up of two main islands, Sand Island and Eastern Island. So if I refer to Sand or Eastern, that's Midway. It's just the two different ones. He, uh, his job was in radar. He set up radar and actually was sent to radar school. And this was back when radar was really pretty new and not a whole lot of people knew a bunch about it. So he was in the cutting edge of that. And he also, uh, his colonel, the colonel there was Sandra, was Colonel Shannon. And he asked my dad to uh, make a newspaper, a weekly newspaper. And this was, if I can show this to you, the Goonie Gazette. He called it the most westerly newspaper in the world. And this was this one was on October of 1941. So it probably was back in 1941. And he would draw cartoons each week in this weekly newspaper. And the Colonel liked the cartoons that he drew and hung a lot of them up in his office. So when you would go into the Colonel's office, you would see my dad's cartoons. And you'll find out why I told you that in a little bit. Well, the first one I wanna read from this was happened on Pearl Harbor Day on December the 7th, 1941. And probably a lot of you don't realize that Midway was also attacked on that day, not nearly to the extent Pearl Harbor was, but they did receive some shelling that day. And this was my dad's experience. My dad is a private at this point in time. He does get promoted later in his Marine Corps career, but at this point he is a private. And, and as I said, this is, this is the morning of December the 7th, 1941 on Midway. It was hurry and confusion and mad and worried and scared and sorry. So sorry for the boys in Pearl Harbor. The Navy maintained a regular Navy base radio station on Midway. They copied all the radio schedules, had all the codes and broke all the traffic. We knew about Pearl Harbor almost as it started and we continued to get reports all day. <clears throat> the Arizona gone, the Oklahoma sunk, the main battle line of the Pacific fleet wiped out. 
At that time, we all thought that the heavy battleship was the Navy's main weapon, and we got to feeling more and more bare and stripped of protection as the messages continued. The whistle on the main electric power station on Sand Island blew about 8.30 on the morning of the 7th, and the construction red was set. I'm sorry, condition red was set. That was a condition of readiness to fight established by all units and every man on the island wherein all guns were manned and loaded and it was assumed an enemy attack was imminent. There were close to 100 guys in the headquarters and service company battery that morning. When condition red was set, most of us reported to the command post and milled around there for a while, repeating rumors, scuttlebutt is what we called it. I plowed through the sand around the bushes and over the dunes to what came to be called the command post radar. We worked like demons the rest of the day, uncrating, hooking up and testing. And he told ahead of time that setting up this radar, they were not given the manual to do this with. It was all this red tape and that, so they had to do this blind. You will recall we had no instruction manuals. They were retained in Pearl because of a secret label and could not be transported by enlisted personnel. An hour or so, why the government, <laughs> even then, an hour or so before dark, we knocked off to go over to our brand new chow tent for the evening meal. We had steak, cream potatoes, and some other vegetable, bread, coffee, cookies for that meal. Not bad way to start a war. Some of us were lining up to wash our mess gear in the steaming GI cans full of hot water. Others were still sitting on the sand eating when the steam whistle on the powerhouse shattered the calm of the late afternoon with the first of a series of long, ear-piercing whoops, a condition red was set again. I ran for the message center. There was an unidentified ship on the horizon to the south. Our Marine manned light signal station on top of the seaplane hangar was challenging it, but had received no response. The ship was approaching the, uh, the island at high speed. The Navy radar reported its range until the echo was lost in the normal ground clutter on the scope about five miles out. The Colonel set out a message for all batteries to hold fire until ordered to open by him. The ship came on, the evening grew darker. The Colonel ordered the target illuminated with our AA searchlight. Within 60 seconds of the time, the first one of those huge lights came on and focused upon the oncoming ship, she opened fired. Her first shell put a very neat hole through the center of the lens and reflector of that light. The ship then went into rapid fire and sprayed shells all around. The order was paused to our batteries. All guns open fire. All acknowledged except for the five inch battery on the tip of Sand Island. Their telephone lines were shot out and they never got the word. And despite the fact that the ship got in so close that rifle flower could and did hit her, their battery commander followed his last orders and refused to fire without new ones. The other batteries had no hesitancy. They pumped shells into the direction of that ship as fast as their guns could be loaded. The ship was identified as a Japanese destroyer. She came on, 
all her guns firing. She showed at the deep water entrance to our lagoon, then came on inside to the reef to point blank range. Our three-inch AA batteries, the ones on that side of the two islands, cranked their gun barrels down, moved the top layer of the sandbags to their parapets so they could be lowered further, and finally got to where they could hit the target. The 50 and 30 caliber machine guns on that side of the island set up a continuous rapid fire. The three inch guns had sharp high pitch crack, which hurt the ears worst of all, and the five inch guns had a sullen deep throat war. The enemy vessels eventually had about the same amount of, evidently had about the same amount of armament. She had their equivalent five inch and three inch and heavy caliber machine guns, but we on the island seemed to be getting more shells hit than our visible enemy fired. A report of gun flashes from below the horizon to the southwest brought an explanation. Our valiant Japanese destroyer was not alone, and its friend had to be bigger than a destroyer to hit us from that far away. There were some worried and anxious expressions on the faces of our, sea, our commanding officers when that fact soaked in. My personal position was this. We three message center types were seated on metal folding chairs with our knees under a long two inch by 12 inch plank for a desk. <clears throat> in other words, we could see nothing, but we had the best seats in the house to see the whole thing or hear it. All the radar reports and the sighting reports came through us. All the orders, the telephone switchboard was right behind us in the other tunnel. So we heard most of that traffic. We could even hear the comment and discussion of our officers as they followed the developments. We could damn sure hear the crump of their shells as they landed and cringed in a series of shell bursts, started walking toward each of us, each exploding closer. The sand trickled down through the cracks and the roofs and the walls, and the five feet of sand protectingly covering us seemed mighty thin at that moment. We were relieved to hear a roar on our side, which meant that particular barrage had passed over. Reports on the hits of the ship began to come in, and the captain of the five-inch battery called the colonel to say he could see the shells hitting the hull of that ship and nothing was happening. The colonel told him to switch from armor-piercing ammunition to high explosive. His shells were going to side the thin destroyer hull and out the other without exploding. Reports of the enemy hits and near misses on us came in too, but not so many of these. We were a whole lot better protected behind our sand parapets and in our holes than he was in that steel walled ship. The destroyer never stopped. She was no further than 300 yards from one of our three inch batteries. It was hard to tell in the increasing darkness, but some said smoke was coming from her starboard side about midship and on the water line. Her fire decreased. Her small caliber stuff stopped. She turned around, eased through the reef, and disappeared, hauled down to the southwest at a fair rate of speed. The colonel called for damage reports. We didn't have much ammunition status. We had fired nearly half the shells on the island in this first engagement. He got the reluctant five-inch battery commander on the radio, finally, and chewed on him for a while. <laughs> A few minutes after the ceasefire order, when it was really dark, seemingly with a spontaneous impulse, the whole island opened fire again, and this time without orders. A very unfortunate, 
Pan American pilot and crew who were trying desperately to get themselves and their clipper ship out of hostilities and home to the States happened to come in from Wake Island at that time. All our guys knew it was that was that it was an airplane and all our guys were supposed to be gone for good, meaning all their airplanes. They shot it full of holes. The pilot pancaked her down into the lagoon as quickly as he could, then ran full tilt up on the beach to keep her from sinking. She was full of bullet holes, but they patched them overnight and she went on to Pearl the next day. It was the last plane we saw for some time. That night, about 10 o'clock, a very angry Pan-American captain came storming into the Central Command to complain to our colonel, which was a useless gesture. We did get some use from him, though. He said he had seen from 30 to 40 miles southwest of Midway two ships, one of them aflame. The bigger ship seemed to be taking survivors from the smaller. And that was the basis for our claim to the sinking of one Japanese destroyer during the Battle of Midway. It also made us all feel easier that night. If on this go round they had sent only two ships and we got one of them, the other was not likely to bother us anymore that night. Oh, wow. Wow, that was really good. Yeah, he's right in the middle of it all. Yeah. Yeah. So it was. Uh, a different perspective on Pearl Harbor, Pearl mm -hmm. Harbor Day, and that it launched a terrible, horrible war. <clears throat> that is <laughs> well. I have one other thing to share from this. Um, later on, uh, after the war starts, and Admiral Nimitz, who was commander of the whole fleet, a whole Pacific fleet. I mean, he was top dog, probably only the president was of a higher rank than him. He wanted to come to Midway. They had figured out through breaking the Japanese code that they expected the Japanese to attack Midway. And I assume the, uh, that Admiral Nimitz wanted to come check it out, see what it is, prepare for the, plan, for the battle, do some planning to see what the layout of the land was, the, you know, just to get familiar. So he came earlier than the battle to do this. And <clears throat> this is about an incident where my dad actually meets him. Oh, wow. I know, really? This, yeah. Along in mid-April 1942, we started to get more men and equipment wholesale. Our three-inch AA guns were traded for nine millimeters and we got three whole additional batteries of them. Batteries of four millimeters and 20 millimeters, which we hadn't had before, came in and were installed. Our numerical strength doubled and our firepower nearly doubled. An adjutant lined us up on the flat spot and told us the reason for all of this. Some real sharp code breakers back in Washington had solved the main Japanese code. We were copying, breaking, and understanding all the orders which they transmitted by radio. The Navy, our Navy, knew that the Japs were putting together the largest to that time invasion fleet ever assembled, and they were coming after us. We were assured that Admiral Nimitz was doing and would do everything possible to prepare us for the coming battle, and that he would come to our island to make a personal inspection in the near future. Oh. Our Navy, <clears throat> what was left of it, was coming out to fight. 
the Admiral felt we had a good chance to beat the Japs off, provided they didn't find out we knew about their plans. To keep them from finding out, it would be necessary for Midway to take the first assaults and to keep, them, keep taking them until the Navy could find the best time to come in. I don't know why this kind of information was shared with all of the personnel on the island. It was kind of unusual, but I've always been grateful that we were allowed to know what was going on and were thereby able to follow the battle as it developed. It helped our resolve and determination too. There was a rumor of some kind of pact among the senior non-commissioned officers to stop any attempt at wake type surrender. I don't think the sergeants had any worry. Old Colonel Shannon wasn't about to give up, ever. By the end of May, both San and Eastern Islands looked like West Texas prairie dog towns. Excepting the concrete runways on the Eastern, you couldn't walk 10 feet in any direction without falling into somebody's foxhole or gun position. And we even made AA mounts for Browning automatic rifles. We took the air-cooled 50 calibers out of the racked planes and set them up on the mounds. I can't say we were overly confident, but we were damn sure ready. The Jap was due early in June. Admiral Nimitz and his part of the staff flew in from Pearl and our Colonel and the base commander spent a couple of days squirming around them and showing them what we had done. The three of us who manned the message center didn't always get the work as it came in from our H&S Battery First Sergeant. He, we seldom saw him and he tended to forget about us. Admiral Nimitz expressed a desire to see how the enlisted Midway Marine lived underground and the Colonel passed the word to have the headquarters and service bunker cleaned up for the inspection and to keep everybody out of it between 1600 and 1800 hours, that's 4 to 6 p.m. on the next afternoon. This was all done but nobody told me I got off watch day at 1600 and I was tired. I was due back to go on watch at 2400, 12 midnight. So I plowed my way around the sandy paths from the command post to the HS bunker and went down into the tunnel. I noticed that everything sure looked clean. Even the floorboards had been freshly oiled. There was nobody around, but this wasn't unusual for this time of day. I pulled off my clothes down to my t-shirt and shorts, hung them on the nail, crawled into my saggy bunk, which was three tiers up, and started to go to sleep. I was almost there when I shout a command, attention, snapped my eyes open. I didn't know what it meant. We never had inspections in the bunker except on Saturday mornings, but that voice sounded mighty authoritative. So I pulled over to the edge of my bunk, rolled off it and landed with my bare feet on the boards, producing a sound like a bass drum had been hit with a sledgehammer. There was a bare electric light bulb hanging from the roof above me. So I was spotlighted. A couple of dim figures rounded the corner from the tunnel and came toward me down the passageway. There I stood at rigid attention in my skivvy drawers, barefoot and hair must Admiral Nimitz, the Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Flank by the Lieutenant Colonel Shannon, took shape out of the underground gloom. My God, I thought Colonel Shannon looked me over. He wasn't smiling. And Admiral Nimitz looked at me, but he grinned. Admiral Nimitz, this is Private Henson, the Colonel said. 
Glad to meet you, Private Henson. I'm glad to meet you, sir, I says. Uh, from Texas, your voice says, what part? Uh, Brownfield, way out on the plains, close to New Mexico. Oh, I know, he says, I'm from Fredericksburg myself. Haven't been there much in quite a few years. It's good to meet another Texan down in this hole in the ground. How's living here? It's all right, except for the bed bugs, I said, and so on for 20 or 30 minutes. I think the Admiral wanted to get an idea of the morale and thinking of the lowliest of his people on the island. I certainly fell into that category. After the first few seconds, he was so friendly. He was as easy to talk to as anybody. And I stood at attention and the Colonel never said a word, but we, the Admiral and me, jot on for quite a while. And finally he said, now you look after yourself in this thing that's coming up. I'll certainly try, I said. I'm no hero. And thus went the only exclusive inspection of a buck private Marine by a full Admiral Navy that I ever heard of. Neither the first Sergeant nor the Colonel ever, either one ever called me about being in there that day. <clears throat> After the battle, the Colonel asked me to draw a cartoon, a sort of memento of the occasion, which he had framed in metal from, from the wing of a shot down Jap plane and presented to the Admiral. And I found out that um, the Admiral had been in Colonel Shannon's office and had seen these cartoons and had asked about them. So he kind of knew about my dad before he actually met him through these, these cartoons. And I do want to share one of those with you. Well, before you do, uh -huh. can, um, can you tell us, uh, you said he wrote, he, he made, um, one a week. What what uh, perspective did he take when he made the cartoons? Were they were they all different? Were they? Yeah, he uh, said one of the hardest jobs he ever had was trying to think of these cartoons every week. And um, he, there were, a lot of them were about Goonie birds because a Goonie, the Goonie birds were just all over the place on Midway Island. Um, and they had this, this piercing sound and this moaning sound they would do at night. So some of them were about the Marines interacting with them. Um, one of them, and I tried to find it today and I couldn't, but he, he had a cartoon about the December 7th shelling where a man is there at the bench, he's down, and this is, it, he called it the baptism of the battle because oh, the sound wow. was coming down over their heads. Mm -hmm. um, got one here that I can show in the about the bed bugs. Um, the bed bug drained me, Sarge. I can't stand the, the midnight to four. Need a blood transfusion to lift my arm. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was one of the bed bugs was apparently horrible, just just torturous from what my dad told me about those. So he had different perspectives. Some were, um, I think they were more humorous in nature than, than political. Um, but the one I want to show you, let me see if I can do that. You taught me how, let me make sure I can do that, <laughs> um, is the one that was sent to Colonel Shannon. Okay, is it there? Um, I think you need to make sure that you click on um, share. Okay. Mm. 
screen sharing. Okay, and then I bring this up, right? Mm-hmm. Right, that's still not getting it. Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, I'll try this one more time. I'm so, I thought I had this down. Click on desktop. And then it's right there, double click. <coughs> you have it now? Yeah. Okay. That's it. Anyway, this, this is the cartoon that was drawn um, as everyone knows that we did win that battle and we sunk several of their, um, their airline cruisers, aircraft carriers. And this was it, the, the dog is depicting the Marine Corps who took a bite out of the Japanese. The ships were that. This was framed and sent to Admiral Nimitz. Um, and this has an interesting personal story with it. Uh, this particular picture was taken at the Museum of the War of the Pacific in Fredericksburg. I had seen this cartoon all my life. My dad was very proud of it and showed it to me and told me about it. <clears throat> but he always wondered what had happened to the original. And so one day, my this only happened about um, just a few months before my dad passed away. And my husband and I went to this museum and we got to the part where they had exhibits on Midway Island. And this was there, my dad's cartoon. Of course, I'm jumping with excitement. Just this poor man next to me, stranger, I'm shaking his arm. That's my dad's cartoon. Well, wow, look at that. You don't understand. We've been wondering what happened. <laughs> He's looking at me, okay. <laughs> he said, no, lady, I really get it. I was in Korea. So of course, I call my dad immediately and tell him about this. <clears throat> and um, I said, that, but daddy's one thing is missing is that your name isn't on it. And this museum was meticulous. They had their names of everybody and everything. It was, it's a very well done museum. But my dad didn't sign this cartoon. And I noticed that, I said, your, your name wasn't there. They don't know, they just said, it now says his name in this picture because of what we did. Um, but I got, I talked to the curator. I told him about it. I told him that's my dad's picture. Then I wanted his name there. He needed to have credit for this cartoon. So we, what we did, my dad collected a lot of the things and I went to see him. He gave me all of this stuff he had done, some other cartoons, the book he wrote, the whole thing. And we took it to the curator and he only looked at a little bit of it. He said, oh yeah, this is your dad's. So he uh, had the, uh, the thing changed and put his, added his name to it, the little plate there. And so I was able to take a picture of this or he did and send it to my dad before he passed away so he could see mm. that. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, sorry. Anyway, it was really cool. <laughs> I'm sure it was. Look, would you remind us what was your dad's name? Foster, F-O-S-T-E-R was his first name and Henson spelled with an I, H-I-N-S-O-N. So Foster Henson and the name of his book? Well, this is the Midway, uh, um, let me stop with this. Um, it's Midway Letters. Okay. And we don't yeah. really selling copies of it, but there is a copy at that museum. Or if anyone is really interested, if they want to contact me, I can loan them a copy or something if they want to read it. That is really, really special. 
Yeah, it really is with our family, especially. So family histories, to me, are some of the most interesting stories there are, you know, personal histories. Your dad and then the European front, mine in the Pacific, and our generation, meaning you and me, we really, most of us were raised by World War II veterans, or at least people who experienced the war. And uh, right. so in a way, it's been a part of our lives too. Yeah, it's very definitely been a part of our lives. And um, it, it is a, uh, as we both stated, it is a different time. Uh, when we, you and I grew up, we were involved in another type of war. We were involved with Vietnam. Well, <clears throat> Korea, but not so much, really Vietnam. And, and we, we knew, yeah, right, right. Mm -hmm. We probably knew every other person that we knew in high school was involved in, in Vietnam in some way, shape or form. And uh, uh, at that time, people talked about the war all the time because it was on the news every night. And um, uh, I, I know now people say, well, we know about everything because of social media, which is true. Uh, but we knew about a whole bunch just because of the evening news and the special reports and the magazines and things that were saturated with uh, uh, Vietnam from all perspectives and all sides. So uh, that, that was quite different. And, and when soldiers came home, they had something to talk about and they talked. A lot, a lot of them did, more mm -hmm. so, exactly. And it was a different perspective. Um, mm -hmm. World War II, almost every American was behind it. We were attacked. There was a reason to go fight. Mm -hmm. um, we were defending ourselves. Vietnam was a very controversial war. And so that was also was in the news as well about it. And um, I know the soldiers that came back faced a whole different thing than the World War II's as well. Right. I, I guess the closest feeling that uh, younger people would have to that of those involved in World War II, because we were attacked, would have been 9-11, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. where we were again attacked. Yes, exactly. The, the feeling right after 9-11, I've never experienced that, how close the country was, how together we were that it didn't matter if you were Republican or Democrat or black or white or whatever you were, if you were an American, then that's what counted. And so, and I think that was the feeling after Pearl Harbor as well. You know, that was, at least my parents described it as that. Yes, I agree with that. I know that, and, and I know that um, I never heard, well, because we're talking about family, I never heard fear in my mother's voice until uh, she watched the accounts of 9-11 uh, on the TV and um, she lived in New York at that time, but it was upstate. But I know that's the first time that I ever heard fear in my mother's voice and, and you know, all kinds of things happened in her life, lifetime. <clears throat> but um, so it makes it very interesting. So again, I want to say to our viewers, and I hope we have plenty of them, if you have a family story to tell, wrapped around World War II, USO, or anything anything else about your family that you would like to share with us, please do. Yeah, I'd love to hear the stories of your families in any about anything, really. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of history behind us. Yeah, 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 it's very, very, uh, very interesting. And 
I love the account that you read from your father's book. That was really cool. Thank he you. must have been a very special man. Oh, he was very much so. And I'm sure your dad was as well. I enjoyed yours also. Well, I guess that wraps it up. I'm Terry Woods. I'm Dixie Cooper. This is Texas Storytellers. And I know you know this, but we're brought to you by Woodlands Online. And please watch us on their Roku station at KVQT21 and listen to us anywhere you can get a podcast. Goodbye for now. Bye. Mm -hmm.